bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. This morning, we are speaking with Alan Lurie. Alan is the author of Five Minutes on Monday. Five Minutes on Monday. Now, that sounds interesting. We formerly worked as an architect. He's currently Managing Director at Grubb & Ellis, a real estate investment firm in New York, and he's also a non-denominational ordained rabbi. So... Alan is going to give us some insight into blending our spiritual being with our business world. Welcome, Alan, to Leading Conversations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Cheryl. I really appreciate it. It's wonderful to have you. Now, where are you this morning? Well, I'm sitting, uh, I'm sitting looking at the Eiffel Tower out my, out my window. And so the Eiffel Tower! Gets, yes, yes. So before everybody says, wow, he's traveling to... Paris. I'm sitting here in Las Vegas oh, <laughs> at a Griffin yeah. Ellis executive retreat uh, in oh. my hotel room, looking out at a quarter-sized version of the Eiffel Tower. And and beyond that, I see these glorious mountains, you know, covered oh. with snow, and the sky is blue. It's a, it's a, it's a gorgeous day here in, in uh, Nevada today. So even in Las Vegas, you can see beyond all the flashing lights, and there's nature, huh? Yes, absolutely. You know, fly, flying in here was really quite 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 a trip literally because you fly over some of the most beautiful landscape you'll ever see. I mean it looks like the surface of Mars, like an alien planet and it's it's yellow and it's green and it's pink. Um oh, and it's just it's gorgeous. And suddenly you come over a hill and you see the whole valley of Las Vegas <laughs> surrounded by these mountains. So it, it's really quite quite a jarring uh contrast. So let's talk about find five minutes on Mondays. Your, your book is titled Five Minutes on Mondays, and right. it's a new book. Is this your first book? This is my first uh, book for major release. I've, uh-huh. I've written uh, prayer books in the past uh-huh. uh, and some kind of overtly Jewish spiritual things. This is my first kind of mass uh, uh, book that's released for the general public. Oh, wonderful. Uh, well, congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's very, very exciting and, and very unexpected. And, and later, I'll tell you how it came about. It's, uh, it's a small little miracle that it uh, that it got to where it is. Well, let's start with how you did get here, but let's start way back. Now, what we know about you is that you had a twenty-five year career as an architect. Yes, right. Correct. Correct. And then you moved into um, working in at Grubb and Ellis. And somewhere along the way, you became a non-denominational ordained rabbi. Now, this Correct. is not what I would call the typical path of, <laughs> of most it's individuals, not, Alan. It's, <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not a usual CV, is it? <laughs> so give us some history here. You know, what, what came first, and how did you get to where you are? Right, right. Um, well, you know, to, to go back a little bit, I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my mother... Grew up in an Orthodox Jewish household in, in Brooklyn, and my father grew up in a, in a more assimilated kind of home. And they moved to Rochester when I was a baby, and, and I grew up there. And, and as a small child, I always had a love of art. 
Mm-hmm. That was really my passion. And I, and I would look, even as a small child, I would look at art and be transported really? to, uh, to places. And, 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 and I really felt this sense of connection with another voice, another vision through that. And, and so I've always had this, this sense of a connectedness that's more than what we experience in our, in our everyday life, that that's possible and, that, and that's real. Um, and, and I grew up, I grew up Jewish, had a bar mitzvah, and, and at some point, I think like a lot of people in my generation, I, I just turned 50 recently, I really rejected the whole idea of organized religion. I thought it was limiting, I thought it was old-fashioned, I thought it was not spiritual in the way that, that I really wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's played with other things, Buddhism, meditation, what have you, and, and, and wanted to study arts, and and eventually got into architecture, thinking that's a good way to kind of make a living and also do something artistic. And did that for many years, you know, all the while pursuing different spiritual avenues. And about 15 years ago, very unexpectedly, Cheryl, I had what I would call uh, an act of grace. I, I had an opening. I had an opening into into um, into God at that moment. And... And it led me back to Judaism. And for many years I studied, and I, I was raising my children in Atlanta at that point. And, and my passion really became understanding Judaism as a transformative practice and, and the depths of it that I never was exposed to when I was a child, and, and the beauty and, and the very deep spiritual teachings. And I started leading services, teaching adult education classes, um, reading hundreds of books every year on the subject, and finally, when my kids went off to college, I said, you know, I really want to get what's called a smicha in Hebrew, an ordination as a rabbi. And I, I found a wonderful rabbi to study with in New York, who is now, he's now 97 years old, and he lived to be 120. And he, I worked with him and studied with him. He assembled what's called the Beit Din, which there are some other rabbis. And they tested me, and, and I, I became ordained really just about two and a half years ago. Oh, that's quite an interesting path. Let's go back a bit to the act of grace. You said that there were, you had an opening into God. What happened for you? Well, it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's one of these things that, Cheryl, when you, when you put into words, it becomes, it diminishes. And, and, I've, mm-hmm. and I've tried many times, and, and I'll do my best with this. So, so, so bear with me a little bit, because it was very personal and very powerful and, and but I, I hadn't been to synagogue in many, many, many years. And, and, and finally, I found myself one Friday night that I wanted to go. I hadn't been in years and years. And I found a synagogue nearby, and, and I walked in, and really not knowing why I was there and what I was doing there. I just felt I needed to go. And I walked in, I sat in the back, wondering why am I here, and this is all silly. And, and they, they started to sing this beautiful little, what's called the Negro in a wordless melody, and, and something about that captured me, and, and I listened, and I thought this was very nice. And, and the music continued, and people, people filtered in, and they, they started singing some more. And, and that, that sense of this, of this ancientness it increased in, in that moment. And, and I really found myself thinking, well, maybe there's something to this after all. And, and I sat back, and I started looking at the people around me. And suddenly... I experienced them in a way that I never had experienced people before. I felt, I mentioned the kind of connection I had to art where I could hear the voice of the artist speaking to me through the canvas 
some of these people became intensely vivid for me, and and that and that shield that we all have around ourselves that defends ourselves and separates ourselves and 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 tells us who we are and who we're not and how we're different from other people started to dissolve, and, and I felt this intense connection and love for these people around me, and and again, this is going to sound very mystical and strange, but. And and I started to I started to cry in the back of the synagogue at this beauty that I never knew existed in, in other human beings. And, and suddenly everything became very vivid for me. I could see this woman in front of me. I'll never forget. I could see every one of the strands on her hair, and, and every one of them was was, was gorgeous, mm. as was she. And suddenly the the synagogue filled with the silvery light. That that what, the whole light changed, and I, I didn't know what was happening. And I felt an embrace around me. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly, as I was crying kind of softly to myself, I, I simply said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the mistakes I've made, for the, the cruel things I've done, for the insensitivities that I've done, for not being as good a father as, as my, my kids need me to be, although I was a good father. Um, and, 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 I, and I thought, who am I saying this to? And and I experienced, I'm not going to say a voice because it, it isn't that way, but I experienced a response that said, I forgive you. And this embrace around me and the light increased. And, and I felt an, an endless sense of love at this moment. And the message to me was, I love you, but you must change. And at that moment, I said, I promise. I promise I will. And I've, I've, kept, I've kept that promise ever since. And, and so at that moment, where I was an atheist before, that I, I, had, I thought the notion of God as the anthropomorphic notion that I knew was, was, was silly and archaic. Suddenly I experienced it in, in a way that was totally real to me mm-hmm. and that was believable. And my passion for 15 years since that is to communicate that possibility and that reality to other people and its transformative uh, qualities. And since then, my career has taken off. Mm. My kids, thank God, my whole life changed in, in every way for the better. Well, and that having that profound experience, um, I like the way you call it an act of grace and an opening um, into God or into spirit. You know, the, we hear about those things. We hear about people having those experiences and... You, you've done a really good job of helping us step into that and feeling what that would be like. Now, a lot of times when we hear about this, it is very much connected to the specific religion that the people are somehow involved in. And from reading what I've read about you and, and some of your philosophy, it doesn't appear that that's what you are talking about. That, that's very true, Cheryl. That, 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 thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's, that's a wonderful observation, and it's, it's very much in line with, with, with my beliefs and, and my experiences. Uh, you know, I think religion, and I think we get this upside down, and, and I'm writing a new book about this. Religion is simply a, a, a repository, a vehicle for carrying the, those type of revelations that people want to communicate to, to the rest of us, mm-hmm. that, that, that spiritually enlightened, gifted, people who have acts of grace, which is God's unwarranted, spontaneous revelation, are, are feel compelled to share it. 
because what's if, if it's just for if it just happens for you and you just keep it for yourself, it, it's not it's it's not it's it's like a car that you never <laughs> that you never drive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so I, I knew at the moment that that I'm not that special. I, I knew that I was given this this glimpse so I could share it with other people, and, and you feel compelled to do it. You feel absolutely compelled to do it, mm-hmm. and. Um, and religions are simply repositories for these kind of visions, and and I think I think they're all wonderful, and I think they're all flawed, and I think they're all human. They're all human uh, inventions. God didn't invent any of the religions we did. Right. Um, yeah, and 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 I think we get it upside down. We tend to we tend to we tend to worship our religions, and we tend to get the idea of faith and belief in religion. I think totally upside down. So my, my understanding of how this works, at least for me is that you begin with faith, and, and faith says, how, what's my orientation towards the world? How do I understand what's happening around me? And, and you create a faith principle. And a faith principle can be a very negative one. You could say people are inherently bad, and they're going to take advantage of you if you turn your back for one moment. That's a faith principle. Mm-hmm. Or you could say the world is purposeful, the world is connected, the world has meaning, as does my life. And, and that's what I believe, and that's a faith principle. So from there, from there, we, um, um, belief springs. So I say, well, if that's my faith principle, and, and there is this, this God, um, which is a, a kind of a, a, a consciousness, the flow of consciousness that animates um, physicality, then, then I believe that we have connection to that. Mm-hmm. And, and that connection comes in the forms of some kind of revelation. And those revelations are, repos- are deposited into a religious pot, so to speak. And if, if the religious pot doesn't match your belief and your faith, the religion has to change. Right. Uh, not, not your faith. <laughs> you don't, but when you start with religion and you say, gee, religion tells me this is so, therefore I believe that, and therefore my faith is this, you become very locked and very fundamental, mm-hmm. and I think very separated from people who have different religions. And I think that's, that's very destructive inherently. Yeah, very well said. Very well said, Ellen. It, it makes me think about how people use religion as an excuse to not take responsibility for choices. And um, I want to talk more about that when we come back after this break. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing 
Walking the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back. We're speaking this morning with Alan Lurie, the author of Five Minutes on Mondays. So, Alan, in our last segment, um, you did a beautiful job of sharing with us how you have um, really touched the spiritual place in yourself that has become... um, your faith that really is who you are and how you see the world. You know, there's a lot going on these days um, around biz- the business world. It seems like everybody, it, uh, it, it's, it's really um, popular to blame the business world for all the ills in the, in the nation, in the U.S. anyway, and somewhat globally. And um, you do some talking about the issue of integrity in the workplace and aligning yourself with your work and what you believe in. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then um, let's talk about some of the realities of today. Mm, yeah, I mean, this is something that's on everybody's mind, and, and of course, I live in I live and work in New York City, and I work in, in a financial area, and so in New York, this this what we're going through now is really visceral. You, you can feel it, and, and and I get resumes from people just about every day who have lost their jobs, and it's really a very difficult time for for many many people, and it's a time of of great uncertainty. And one of the principles in in the book. Five minutes on Monday is that, um, and I think this is true for just about any religious teaching, uh, is that uncertainty is uh, a great doorway to growth. That without without uncertainty, if we moved along certain of ourselves, we would we would stagnate. You know, we w- we wouldn't grow, and, and and everything grows and everything changes. It's the very nature of of life and, and of the universe. And when things stop growing, they just start dying. And when they stop changing, they start dying. Mm-hmm. And so, so uncertainty and, and change uh, are inherent in our lives and are the very vehicle by which, by which we grow. And when we fight that is when we develop neuroses. Mm-hmm. We want to control, we want to, we want to concretize, and we want to keep things exactly as they are. Uh, we develop intense neuroses because that's that's a violation of the very the very the way things work. Things will change, and and the more we try to stop that, the more unhappy and the more suffering we're going to have. Well, uh, you know the the fear that exists in um, our society right now, um, as you said, you're feeling it. It's palpable in New York City. I think it's palpable across the United States and across the globe, right. and. So, but I've also never quite seen this level of fear with this level of hope. And, and yeah, that's a great point. Isn't it interesting? That's a great point. Well, they go together. They go together. I, I think that's. I think that's also a, a, a cosmic principle that that those the, the, the ship rises together. You know, as, so so that as there's more uncertainty, there's more hope because. We intuit. I think we intuit, and this is the, the Obama revolution. Whether you, whatever you, whether you support him or not, he certainly represents the fact that people want hope. 
Yes. And, and that hope, that hope talks to our, our, our deepest yearnings as human beings. And that we don't really, we don't need that hope until we're in a place where we need it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if, if things are going along fine and we're fat and, we're fat and happy, we're not going to be yearning mm-hmm. for, for change. We're not going to be wanting hope because we're, we're settled. Um, and, and so when that rug gets pulled out from under us, suddenly, suddenly we, we, um, we, we need hope. And, and, and we yearn for it. And in terms of kind of getting back to the workplace, now the, the workplace itself, you know, spirituality, and, and I tell people this, if, if all spirituality does is make you feel good about yourself at the moment you're doing it, whether that's prayer or meditation or, or what have you, and it doesn't change you in your life, it's, it's, not, it's not a true spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that the place that's really tests us the most, I believe, is the workplace. You know, the rabbis in the Talmud, which is the collection of Jewish wisdom, ask a very interesting question of each other. They say, what's the first question that the heavenly court is going to ask you? In other words, after you die, what's the, what, what, how is your life going to be judged? What, what one question would you ask of that life to determine whether it was well lived? And one rabbi says, did you pray? Another one says, did you study? Another one says, did you give charity? One rabbi says, were you honest at work? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And all the rabbis look at him and go, you know, you're right. That is the first question that would be asked. Mm -hmm. Because work is where you are most tempted to bend the rules, to be dishonest, to cheat. And it's also the place where you're most most, uh, tested. You work with other people. You work with people you like. You work with people you don't like. You have difficult clients. You have the pressure to make a living. You have ambitions to get ahead. Mm-hmm. You have bosses and other people who are standing in your way or are supporting you. You have you have great uh, ego based um, um, drives for success, for acknowledgement, for recognition, for money, and to be in that environment and stay centered and stay true to the deepest principles is really the main test of how a person lives their life. Well, why why do you think that um, that shows up more in work than it does in families? Is this economic based? I think, yeah. Well, I, you know, that, that's that's well, a great. The families is the other venue, certainly, and certainly within within a, a loving relationship between a husband and wife that tests you in different ways uh, because your your spouse knows you in an intimate way that nobody at work will ever know you. Um, but I think I think at work it's possible to create personas. Um, you, you work with a much wider variety of people, of course, than you do at home, and and you don't have a love relationship with these people at work. So you're more tempted to use people and see them as objects to for your own ambitions. Um, at home, especially if you have a healthy relationship with a wife or a husband who is going to hold you to being your best self. If they truly, you know, M. Scott Peck said that the definition of love, which is a wonderful definition, is the willingness to extend yourself for the spiritual growth of another human being. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a love relationship, that's what you do for each other. Mm-hmm. At work, it's unlikely, unless you have a wonderful mentor, that somebody's going to be extending themselves for you in that way. So how do we give work meaning? You know, I mean, it seems like, I, I hear this a lot as an executive coach over the years, I have heard people say, I am not the same person at work that I am when I am outside of work. 
And right. that is not a belief I hold. I, I, you know, and we work a whole lot on, well, let's talk about integrating who you are so that you can be <laughs> you, right? Right, right, exactly. So, so, you know, how is it that we can bring our whole self to the work game? That's, that's the, you know, I call work a spiritual gymnasium. That, that's the real challenge. It's the challenge, Earl, and I think, I think you put your finger right on it and how it's different, perhaps, than your, than your, your home life. Uh, because so many people, and, and I feel this, I mean, I'm not, I'm not putting myself, I can talk about this because I struggle with these things myself. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and I work in, in, in a big national real estate firm with thousands of people. And it's very easy and very tempting and very uh, consoling to put on a mask when you go to work and, and put on your kind of your kind of work person. And it's very difficult to strip away. We're, we're afraid of being seen. We're afraid of being judged. Mm-hmm. We're afraid of showing our weaknesses, especially if you're a man of my generation. We might have been raised to be told, never never show your weaknesses, right? Never let them see you swear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that creates this facade um, that that doesn't allow a lot of air and growth into it because you're in a very defensive mode. And to be willing to, to strip that away and have the courage within a work environment to say, this is me, this is who I am, um, and, and, and to be with that um, is, is a tremendous opportunity for growth. And, and as you said, the, the real goal is to be authentic mm-hmm. in whatever environment you are. Now, there's a, there's a wonderful little Buddhist story and I forget who it's told about, but there's a, there's a Buddhist monk who's considered enlightened. And he's going to introduce the emperor to a group. And as the emperor steps up, the Buddhist monk realizes that his palms are sweating because he's a little nervous about being in front of this emperor. Mm-hmm. And he realizes in that moment that he's not truly enlightened, that he sees the emperor in a different way than he sees other people. And he goes and he meditates for seven more years and comes back with, with equanimity. Um, but, but at work, where there's, a, where there's a hierarchy like that and we're trying to impress the boss and we're trying to manage our staff, um, it, it could be very difficult to, to look at every them, at all of them the same and to be the same person for each one of those situations. Mm-hmm. And, and the reminder to yourself to be authentic in those situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, work presents a great opportunity to practice that. Mm-hmm. Well, and so what is the responsibility of leadership? Um, you know, I, I, if in fact people are afraid of being seen, quote unquote, not only by their peers but by leaders in, in organizations, um, for fear that they may not be good enough, or you know, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. What is the responsibility of leadership in this whole scenario of, of, of authenticity and of, of spiritual development? I, well, I, you know, there, there's the whole sense, and again, I've seen it change dramatically in the 30 years that I've been. When, when I started, a, a leader was somebody who told you what to do and held you accountable. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, if you didn't do it, you know, you moved on or you found somebody else. And and, and it was a direction, there was a control kind of kind of position, and, and we've seen that change dramatically for a variety of reasons. I think it's the aging of the baby boomers who who won't take that, and I think it's a it's a realization that it simply doesn't work. I mean, how much control can one person have? Um, and, and you're not developing people. So the new model and the model that, that I try to embrace as, as a leader for, for my staff is to serve them, right, to, 
my goal for every one of them is for them to be better at their job than I am, to, 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 um, to be happy at their work, to uh, feel that uh, what they have to say is valued, um, and to feel free to come to me with any questions and issues that they have and, and, and know that I'm going to listen um, in, in a compassionate way. On the other hand, I have a, frankly, I have a P&L to run and I have a bottom line to report to, to my executives. And, and that's a constant challenge uh, for anybody in a leadership position, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're committed to, to spirituality and you're committed to uh, you know, being the best that you can. How do you treat your people with compassion, with respect, um, with empowering, uh, to be a servant leader as opposed to a control leader, and also to hold everybody accountable. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I, I believe, and I think management theory shows this, that if you hire the right people and train them the right way and, and monitor them with that, with that um, philosophy, they're naturally going to rise to, to that level, and actually you're going to need less control over them. People tend to rise mm-hmm. to the expectations that you set for them. Well, we're going to talk more about this when we come back right after the spring. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On the economy and the markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Market with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Esposito with Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Alan Lurie, author of Five Minutes on Mondays. Alan, we have talked a lot about integrating the spiritual self 
into the outward self so that we're just living who we are, whether we are at work or at home, no matter where we go. And I know that when people are, um, when everything is good, when finances are healthy and people feel secure in their jobs, the concept of personal growth is much more attractive to them than when they are more in the survival mode. And these days, there are a lot of people who are in the survival mode and in that fear mode we talked about earlier because will I have a job tomorrow? Um, If I do have a job, am I still going to get paid the same way I've been paid? Is my life going to be the same? Um, The uncertainty, as you said earlier, though it's a opportunity for growth is so huge, are people open to letting this be an opportunity for growth, or do they shut down somewhat? Yeah. You know, I, I, and I've asked myself that a lot, because I, I, feel the same, I feel the same fear that a lot of people do, and the same uncertainty. And I have two boys in college, and I, I have a mortgage, and, and I, I wondered to myself, what, what would happen, God forbid, if, if I was out of work? And, and and how would I feel about that? And that's that's a little that's a test that I go through um, for myself. And, and I could feel my spiritual yearning dropping <laughs> in that moment, and my physical needs rising. And, and I think that's as it should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Maslow or any developmental theorist, you know, talks about this pyramid of needs, mm-hmm. and and our, and our, our most basic needs—food, shelter, clothing—need to be taken care of, and and they take a higher priority. And so my spiritual practice right now is helping people find jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell business leaders, you want to be really spiritual? Give somebody a job. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most spiritual things that you can do is to really take care of somebody in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the great, the great traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, you know, teach this, that, that we're responsible for people's physical well-being. And, and it's... It's somewhat unreasonable to expect somebody who's out of work and in a fear-based mode, they don't know how they're going to pay their bills, they have children, to, to come to a Bible study class right. and, and to listen to that. Although I do, I am teaching a series of classes right now about how to deal with these feelings, and, 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 and they're popular, and, and people, people like those, and I think get some consolation out of it. Uh, but I think we should expect people to feel that, and I think it's very natural and it's very human. And for those of us who who have jobs, uh, our responsibility is to help them as, as best as we can. And I think the spiritual guidance that can be offered to somebody who's out of work, it's, it's easy for me to say, you know, losing your... I mean, when I, one of the greatest things that happened to my career was when I lost a job. When I, I got fired and I was devastated. This was many, many years ago. Came out of nowhere. And within six months... I was making twice as much money and was, I was happy and I was very glad that they fired me. I wouldn't want somebody to say that to me at that moment. Right. Um, the, the story of Job teaches when, and, and the Talmud says it's when somebody is in mourning, don't give, them, don't give them advice. Don't tell them this must be for a reason. Don't tell them, hey, in a year this, you'll say this is the best thing that happened to you. Say to them, I'm so sorry that this happened. This must be very difficult. And, and to offer them consolation, mm-hmm. and to say, send me your resume, let me see who I can find who's looking for people, and to offer some real tangible help. That's, that's the spiritual road to take at that point. This is where it's really important for one to face 
one's fears and our failures and yet keep going. And it sounds like what you're saying is that as leaders and organizations, what can be done is you can help people keep going. Right, right. And, and you can give people hope mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. You, could, you can definitely give people hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, even though we're right now where people are in the panic, I think unemployment is 7.5%, something like that. That means 92.5% of people have jobs. You know, we don't, we, don't really, we don't really say that. We say, oh, unemployment is 7.5%. Right. How about saying 92.5% of, of Americans have jobs? Mm-hmm. Now, that's probably overstated. There's people who are uh, underemployed or who have been unemployed for so long they don't hit the rolls. Mm-hmm. But still, the vast majority of people have jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's important to, to think about that as well. You know, there's there's the old saying that a recession is when your neighbor loses your job, and depression is when you do. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's and that you know, and that's that's very 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 true. Yeah. Well, and I think that you know, it's a um, a little bit of a shift for most of us in that over time, our society has developed this sense of well, if people are out of work. It's because they're not trained or they're lazy or, you know, they're down their luck or they're sick or, you know, there's something wrong and we can justify that. There is a rational reason for that. And today when it's either I'm out of a job or, as you say, my neighbor's out of a job, suddenly these are people who are highly skilled. They are people who did nothing wrong. um, And it's not just that, you know, they're down on their luck. This is a real problem. This is happening to people that now everybody just looks at every day and says, how can this be? So that percentage, though there is a large percentage of people employed, the percentage of people unemployed, I think it's more about the demographic of who the unemployed are. And that's why people are so scared. Well, that, that's right. So that's, that's, a, that's a terrific point, Cheryl. I, I, I was talking to, I've been talking to people who are executives, especially in the architectural community, which, which I know very well and have a lot of friends with. Uh, you know, these are people who have 20, 30 years experience, make a good salary, uh, and, and they've been cut. Uh, their company simply can't afford to, to hire them. And in past recessions, they could move to a different industry, they could relocate to a different part of the country, sure. and, that's, and that's not really available to them right now because all the sectors are down and all the regions are down. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. So, and 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 I and I and I agonize for these people because I'm not really sure what they're going to do except write it out for a while mm-hmm. um, and, and and see and see where it, where this where this goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you're right. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot. There's a lot of potential for growth in those moments. And I know people who have lost their jobs and are saying, you know what, this is, this is the kick in the pants I need right now mm-hmm. to do what I've always wanted to do anyways. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know there's a lot of startups of new businesses. And there's people who are saying, who are looking at this as, as really an opportunity to embark on something that they will be happier with uh, in the long run. And so this is really an important time for people to reach deep and reach into their creative, right? Correct. So you know, what do you? What, how do you help people do that? How do you help them reach into their creative self? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a nice little analysis that you can do, and and I, I do a lot of career coaching, and and I and I 
and I do enjoy helping people kind of think through these things. And there's a little analysis that you do, and you can you can do it on three sheets of paper, and and you list the things that you enjoy doing, the things that are fun for you, and that could be anything from flower arranging to hiking to painting a painting. You list the things that you're good at. What are the things that you really? And then you list the things that are meaningful to you. What do you do that's really meaningful? And if there's something on those three sheets that shows up each time, you know, boy, that's really where you ought to put your energy. If you can find something you're good at, that you enjoy doing, that's meaningful for you, that's your life's purpose. And and I don't know that people, you know, I, I interview, when, when times were good and I was interviewing a lot of people, I, I like to ask them after they've settled down, because this is a jarring question to ask right away, but after 15, 20 minutes, I say, you know what, forget that I'm interviewing you right now, but and I say, I'm just curious about you as a person. If you could do anything, you know, and that doesn't include sitting on the beach in Acapulco, but if you could do anything for a living, what would your ideal vision of that look like for you? You know, and, and no holds barred, anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised, and I've asked this hundreds of times, um, that you know, maybe they don't want to give me a compelling answer because they think I want to hire them if they say they really want to be a, an undersea, you know, a scuba diver uh, when they're looking for a job in real estate. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know that people really think about this. Yeah. As much, and I, you know, and and I, I really encourage my kids to think about this, and 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 I think about it. I, I can't say that I that I totally live it, but but it, it's I could give a very good answer for that. Um, and this is a time for people to think about that. Mm-hmm. I really like how how this is split out because you say list the things you enjoy doing, then list what you're good at, then list the things that are meaningful to you. Now you know. When I think about listing the things that you enjoy doing and listing the things you are good at, most people would combine those two things. And I, I find that sometimes people um, have things that they're good at, but that doesn't necessarily mean they really enjoy them. Correct. So that's Correct. really a good discernment there. Really, It is, because if, if there's something, Cheryl, that you enjoy doing but you're not good at, you can be frustrated. Right. Like I used to, I used to enjoy painting, and I wasn't very good at it. I, I, I was very good at understanding art. I wasn't that good at doing it, but I used to enjoy it. If there's something that you're good at but you don't enjoy, you'll be bored. Right, right. And if there's something that the two of them, but it's not meaningful, you'll you'll ultimately be depressed. Mm-hmm. And that takes us to this whole other conversation about. Um, job satisfaction and finding meaning in work that long before the economic crisis occurred, people have been struggling with. And I'm going to talk more about that when we come back in just a moment. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? 
Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're speaking with Alan Laurie this morning, author of Five Minutes on Mondays. Now, Alan, you talked about people enjoying their work or, or being good at something and not necessarily enjoying it. And I would like you to just touch on, um, you know, before we ever hit the economic crisis, people were really struggling for many, many years about doing work that just, just to pay the bills. And it wasn't necessarily work that was meaning, meaningful for them. And, um, you know, it seemed like it was um, rapid. I mean, how, how did we get there as a society? How did we get to the point where work only mattered with, because of the paycheck? Right. Well, I'm not sure how we... I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist in that way. Um, I, I think certainly my father's generation... If you if you went to my father, who's still alive, thank God, and is as well, and has been retired in Florida for many years as an executive at Kodak, if you asked him, do you think you should enjoy your job? Do you think you should have fun? Do you think it should be meaningful? I think he would have looked at me like, what are you what are you talking about? This is it's a job to pay the bills, so I can take care of you and and give you a send you to college and and pay for a house. And I think people looked. I know people looked for those things elsewhere. Um, my generation, the baby boomers, really saw that. The man in the gray flannel suit, death of the salesman. There were a lot of, if you saw Revolutionary Road, which came out recently, there was a sense in the 50s that this was leading nowhere. People, yeah. people were depressed. Mm-hmm. Men were angry. They were burned out. Wives were taking Valium. The kids were a mess. It wasn't, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a good way to live when you're spending 40 hours a week or more. Americans are spending 50 hours a week at your job, and you hate it and you're only doing it for a paycheck, you can't go on that way. Eventually, it's going to take its toll on you. And, and so, some of this, and excuse me for interrupting, but some of this, um, I think, um, I don't know which came first, but certainly the separation of um, the spiritual self and the work self um, occurred at a pretty big rate during all of this. And, um, and so, you know, you've challenged that, and... You do that with your book, Five Minutes on Mondays. You've challenged that, you know, we, we shouldn't be living this separate, these separate lives. So tell us a little bit about how Five Minutes on Mondays came about. Well, and, and that, that, that's a great segue because this, this kind of ties into it. I, and, it's, and it's a funny story, and I'll tell it very quickly, but I met my boss, David Arena, who's the president of our, of our company, on the train heading into Manhattan. And I, I saw him one day sitting across from me. I recognized him. He's a very well-known kind of business person in New York City. And it happened to be a very, very hot day that day. And, and I ran for the train, and I was sweating. And I thought, I'll introduce myself. And I, I pulled out a business card that was kind of soggy, and I gave it to him, and he looked up at me and said, thank you very much. I'm back to this meeting. And I saw him again about six months later, 
and he noticed I was reading a book in Hebrew, heading home, and he sat down next to me and asked me what it was, and was very interested. He said, are you a religious man? And I said, well, I happen to be a rabbi. And we got into this wonderful conversation, and he's a person who's completely dedicated to spirituality and, mm. and has reached some of the highest ranks, you know, within the business world, acting in a way that's aligned with those values. And I was actually drinking a beer that day. It was Friday. I was heading home for the weekend, getting ready for the Sabbath, and I, I was having a little beer. And as I shook his hand, I spilled beer all over him. And, I, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and, and he, you know, and he, he laughed. He said, "Well, now I've been baptized by a rabbi." <laughs> and and I saw him again about two weeks later. It, it was a, a day I took off from work. I was just moving. And I ran into the city to visit a client, and I was wearing jeans and a T-shirt, and I think I had paint on my pants because I was painting. And he walks in, I see him again, you know, and I look like I'm, you know, some, I, I don't look exactly professional. We got to know each other, and 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 he liked he liked that kind of awkwardness about me, if I can be, if I could say so. That he thought that was very authentic. I wasn't trying to impress him; I was just who I was, and he he liked that. He made me an offer to come on board as managing director, and he said, you know. I have an idea. He says, our staff meets every Monday morning at 8 a.m., about 100 hard-nosed New York real estate brokers, if you can kind of picture these guys. He said, I'd like to start the staff meeting with you doing a little talk to us. Not, not, a, not a sermon, not, not religious per se, but talk to us about things like balance and honesty and authenticity and humility and gratitude. Uh, and so we... So, I said, really? And so for five minutes every Monday morning, I would get up in front of this group and I would share some thoughts, usually based on a recent personal incident or an incident in the news, mm-hmm. and, and take that as a way to explore some of these concepts. And, and these talks would draw from a variety of different sources, different religious sources. I'm as likely to quote Plato and Buddha um, as I am Moses, you know, and, and I'll quote Warren Dennis. Um, and we eventually compiled, and we'd send, I wrote them down, we'd send them out to our staff and to our colleagues and our friends. And soon they were reaching thousands of people in New York. And as a matter of fact, one day I was asked to be an, ex- an expert witness to testify in a, in a trial. And I, I swore myself in, you know, what's your name? And I said, my name. And the judge said, oh, really, I love your book. <laughs> well, she said, I love you. So she's been getting my writing. She said, I love what you write every week. And so it was reaching thousands of people. And then we decided as a company to compile them into a book to give away as a New Year's gift in 2008. That got into the hands of my dear friend, Martin Roots, who was in Santa Fe and wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul and is just a dear, dear man. He sent it off to Pearson, uh, and the publishers there loved it. And we did an extended version with some more content, uh, which is now coming out as Five Minutes on Monday. That's fantastic. That's yeah, fantastic. yeah. And so how would you recommend that people use this book? Well, you know, the, I, I, the book can be used in several different ways. Some of the chapters offer some very specific examples of things that you can actually do. Um, there's a chapter on overcoming fear that has a, a list of very specific activities that one can do to mm. do that. And, and the same thing for a chapter on authenticity. How can you really do that? Other chapters are more meditative, if you will. They're more um, speculative. I have a chapter on gratitude that really kind of challenges 
our whole idea of gratitude. Is it mm-hmm. just something that we're happy that we got what we wanted? Or can we actually be grateful for the things that showed up in our lives that we didn't want at all, but that led us to change? Um, the, 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 the story that I really like, and this is, it, it's, <laughs> forgive me in advance if it sounds a little patting myself on the back, but I, my very first interview for the book was from CIO Magazine. And the person called me and she said, she said, I've got to tell you, Alan, she said, I woke up this morning with a terrible headache. And I hadn't read your book yet, and I wasn't looking forward to it. And as I'm driving to work on the train, I opened the book. And she said, after three he- chapters, my headache was gone. She said, there's a style of the book, there's a, there's a content to it that's very relaxing, very um, comforting, very reassuring to people. And, and I've heard this a lot. And, and I think one way to read the book is simply to, to, to know that the things that are, because most of the chapters, or many of them, start with a very difficult or challenging or seemingly mm. uh, irreconcilable situation that happened at work or in my life. And, and then I go from there to really show how that can be a great opportunity for, for growth and a great opportunity for new adventures for you. Well, and it sounds like that this is something that we need now more than ever. And the book is Five Minutes on Mondays, and the author is Alan Lurie, who we've been speaking to this morning. Alan, it's been a privilege to have you here today. So tell us, how can people uh, contact you if they want to know more about your book and the work you do? Sure, and, and it's, been a lot, it's been a lot of fun, Cheryl. I've I, I really enjoyed this quite a lot. Um, I, the website for the book is going to be up in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And if somebody wants to go to it, I don't know the exact address yet, but if you Google five minutes on Mondays, um, I'm sure you'll get to it. Uh, I can also be reached via my, my email at work, which is alan, A-L-A-N, dot Lurie, L-U-R-I-E, at grub, G-R-U-B-B, hyphen Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, dot com. Uh, the book should be available in the bookstores uh, mid-March. Great. Um, it'll be face out in all the Hudson's in the airport, so that's great. Oh, fantastic. Alan Lurie, thank you so much. Five minutes on Mondays uh, is something that I think everybody can afford to take. Well, thank Remember, you. everyone, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week.